I'm Carol Speakerman, and this is Speakerman Speaks Retail, presented by MarketScale. Hey, it's Carol, and welcome to Episode 8 of Speakerman Speaks Retail. Now, for those of you who are listening in for the first time, I help all kinds of retail-focused companies perfect a repeatable, scalable positioning process so that you can land big B2B programs in the retail space. And I also speak at events on what's really happening across all facets of retail and what you can do about it. But right now, we're laser-focused on that first part of the premise, perfecting your retail positioning and accelerating business development right now. Because fourth quarter is just around the corner, and then, of course, we've got 2021 right behind it. So that's why I've picked this moment to kick off a series on eight mistakes that suppliers can't make, so that we can do a deep dive into the problems that come up time and time again in retail B2B situations. Whether you sell products or services or solutions, or even those of you who are trying to sell your capabilities to investors and other partners. Now, we're going to take on these eight mistakes one by one, and I'm providing concrete action steps and even some homework that's going to help you really own it going into 2021. You're going to want to listen all the way through to get all the tools and tactics and takeaways. Now, in the last episode, we covered off on mistake number one, which was one of the biggest mistakes suppliers can make, setting yourself up to be told no slowly like sometimes over the course of weeks or even months, and even after you think you landed the perfect pitch. In fact, a lot of cases, that's when it happens. You're high-fiving your teammates, and then you get crickets. Today, we're going to talk about how to get to yes, and how to do it sooner than later. But here's the fundamental obstacle to that. Too many of you guys are limiting your options and your connections. You're relying on old retail paradigms that are just no longer at work anymore. So if you sell products, you're going to buyers. If you sell data solutions, you're going to the IT department. Now that makes sense from a very literal standpoint, but it also means that you might be making supplier mistake number two. You're stalking the usual suspects. Let's get to the bottom of why this is even a problem and talk about some alternatives. Now, those of you who have attended my presentations and worked with me, you know that one fundamental principle guides everything that I do, that retailers are no longer just places that sell stuff. They're now platforms that tie together digital, social, mobile, partnerships, acquisitions, content, data, and so much more. So retailers' platform reach now blows past hundreds or even thousands of stores or even millions of clicks on a website. And yours can too. But not if you're still pitching to those usual suspects and ignoring your platform leverage, acting like a company that just sells stuff to retailers. So this is why I call my whiteboard sessions and trainings platform positioning workshops, because that's the name of the game these days. Positioning platform to platform, not finding pain points and just pitching your stuff. Platform positioning marks a really big shift, and it changes just about everything you do. And it definitely changes who you pursue for three main reasons. First of all, it takes a lot of people to run those retail platforms these days. And at the same time, those layered buyer, DM, GM structures that have always defined retail are starting to get torn down. So you see retail organizations becoming less hierarchical and sort of flattening out. But you've got technology and data and content and other positions on retailers platforms starting to take center stage. 
Now, marketing and merchandising are still in the mix, but they're no longer the only game in town. They're not ruling the roost. And those roles have changed dramatically anyway because they have to incorporate this new focus on data and technology and all the rest. Now, in some cases, retailers have eliminated executive marketing roles altogether in favor of roles that synergize retailers' platforms. Now, that brings us to the second reason why platform positioning changes the game. No two retail organizations look the same these days. Going back to that old model of buyers and DMs and GMs, you know, it used to be that was the way every retailer was structured, and it made it a lot easier to plan your business development strategy because everything matched up. These days, everybody is terminally unique. Right now, if you do a Google News search on newly created roles and retail on any given day, all kinds of stuff will pop up. Now, I did this just today, and I pulled up a chief digital and strategy officer, um, a head of client partnerships, and wouldn't you know it, a newly created chief restructuring officer role. Now, that's just a sample of the new roles being created at completely different retail companies and just this week. But the bottom line is retail organizations are no longer cookie cutter. And so your approach can't be either. Now, the third reason that this platform positioning changes who you pursue is all about you. If you're a platform and not just a company that sells stuff, that means that you are also multidimensional and you have a lot more to offer than just your wares. You've got data and content and expertise and so on. So when you start thinking like a platform, you start really owning your value and hopefully not diminishing or devaluing the other stuff that you bring to the table. Now, let's blow out that last point because it's so common with suppliers of all stripes. Now, what I've found is that the easier something is to do or the further it is away from what you sell, the more it tends to get devalued. Just because something's easy for you to do doesn't mean it doesn't have tremendous value to somebody else. And just because it's a byproduct of what you do or something you've only been doing for a couple of years or a couple of months rather than a decade or whatever the undermining excuses that you can come up with, none of those excuses preclude you from getting an audience for that thing and getting paid for it. So this is why platform positioning is the only way to go and why that instead of looking for trigger pullers, you should be building influence networks with all those people who run the various aspects of your prospects platforms. These are the people who get value out of different parts of your business and your platform. These folks might become your champions when it's all said and done. So let's talk about some best practices for linking your full platform value to your prospects platform structure and branching out beyond those usual suspects. Here are three rules that are going to really help you get out of those old mindsets. And I'm going to tie in some homework and new practices that are going to broaden your reach and boost your business development. Number one, focus on research instead of relationships. Now, I'm not saying that relationships are dead. You hear that all the time, and it's not entirely true. But the old days of relying on so-called contacts to make things happen are definitely over. We talked about one reason for this in the last episode, how Retail HQ has become a revolving door, and particularly through the corona crisis. I bet everyone listening in can attest to that. It's just a universal frustration. No one's staying in place. Everybody's moving around constantly. And that means that even if you do have contacts now, you're not going to have them for long. And of course, that means that you absolutely will not use claims of having contacts and relationships as your primary hiring criteria, because that qualification is going to melt away very quickly 
And then what do you have left? You want to hire people who can plug into your process. And that's why we're talking so much about defining that process. One of the top requests that I get, and I get it several times a week, is some kind of contact or referral request. Companies hoping that I'm going to get so excited about what they offer that I'll just bust out and start naming names or even representing them to my contacts. I don't do this, not because I'm a meanie, but it's because it totally misses the point. Doing so would reinforce bad habits and create temporary crutches for companies that should be building a process and doing relevant research that's going to ride out that revolving door that's happening in retail. So let's talk about that research. Now, we just talked about how no two retailers have the same structures and titles anymore. So job number one is to find out who does what and where, and that requires research. For info on publicly traded companies, I like to refer people to SeekingAlpha.com. I'm not affiliated with them. They're just a great resource for transcripts and investor calls to where you can really read through and parse out what their top initiatives are, what they're putting on the front burner, and who they're placing in charge of those initiatives, most importantly. You'll learn about the new roles they're creating and why they were created in the first place. Your goal is to list at least five contacts who link to different capabilities on your platform, not just buyers, but influencers and persons of interest also. You're essentially deconstructing your platform and then linking it to theirs under the assumption that no two retailer platforms are going to look the same. Now, this goes for those of you who work with brands and other retail stakeholders, too. The rule is the same. This is just all about B2B contacts and making things happen. Rule number two is to focus on curiosity rather than closing. What if you approached every meeting with a genuine sense of curiosity, wanting to really learn and see where things go rather than just racing toward a close? Well, I can tell you that this one change immediately differentiates you from your competitors and it immediately transforms the energy in the room or as the case is now on the Zoom. It's going to lower the pressure and create a level playing field. But more than anything, curiosity takes confidence and it encourages disclosure and mutuality in these relationships. Remember, as part of your prospect mix, you're deliberately seeking audiences with folks who may not be able to directly book business with you, but they might be able to in the future. In the meantime, they might have mighty influence over those who do or have valuable information that's going to move your process along. And here's a little secret. Did you know that a lot of retailers don't even know who does what in their organizations anymore? Their organizations are changing so fast because of that revolving door and all of those newly created roles that all kinds of functions are falling into gray areas. So having that sense of curiosity is going to help uncover these possibilities and it's going to give people permission to buy into what you do rather than just brushing it off because they can't automatically assign it. So it really does pay to stay curious for all kinds of reasons. Now, the third rule is to convene instead of target. We talked about the importance of your process, and I keep talking about it, how having a business development process and guiding your prospects through it accelerates your sales cycle. Even though your process is going to be unique to you, mastering the art of convening multiple stakeholders is going to get you so much further than targeting a so-called trigger puller and continuing to just go after them. 
So convening needs to be part of your process. And that means having a point of view on the roles within your prospects organization that support your unique business development process, and then proactively pulling those people together as early as possible. I have a client in the fashion business who is an absolute master at this. Early in their business development process and all the way through to when their goods are shipped and sold, they plug their clients' merchandising, marketing, data analytics, and other stakeholders into their process, and then they match them up with counterparts within their organization. Their retail clients and their other partners consistently say, man, this is such a help. And that's really sweet because we can't lose sight of the fact that your goal is to provide value. And it makes all kinds of sense because as decentralized as some of these companies are becoming these days, they're grateful to get to know some of the folks within their own company that they otherwise wouldn't even meet. So you can be the conduit to this kind of collaboration and it benefits you and your prospect. Don't wait for them to hook you up. Start making the connections and pulling them together early in your process. You're going to become much more meaningful to each of your customers when you do this, and you're going to have a larger network of decision makers and influences anchoring your process with that prospect. Research, good old-fashioned curiosity, and convening are the pathway to getting past the usual suspects and to broadening your horizons and your influence. You know, nothing makes me happier than seeing the lights go on as companies start really owning their value, getting credit and results for the stuff they're already doing, and getting more confident as they pivot to platform positioning. Now, if that lights your fire, then stay tuned for the rest of the series. Thanks for listening in today. I would love to hear from you if you have any questions or ideas to share. You can ping me at carol at speakermanretail.com or hit my site at speakermanretail.com to check out more insights, subscribe to my updates, and get the latest on events and other happenings. I'll see you next time.